Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen yearning to live and breathe freely again to the one and only CR podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back here in the house. October 20th, it's a Wednesday, and the year is almost up. This is the year that I warned about that would determine whether we will live as a free people or not. And the clock is ticking, and it does not look good, but we are going to try as much as we can. There's a lot of other news I planned on getting to, but then I got sidetracked today. And it's going to tie into today's special guest and probably tomorrow's show as well. But when we talk about fighting for liberty, there is no greater liberty than the right to live. Now, what if government introduces a bioweapon virus upon a population, forces them into another bioweapon treatment of it, and blocks the legitimate treatment. Well, I'll tell you what happens. What happens is that it's kind of hard to focus on anything else. So I've been very sidetracked trying to streamline and find a source to streamline getting doctor's prescriptions and getting pharmacy a pharmacy to fill and get you guys who haven't had the virus yet uh, a way of getting um, prophylaxis, or at least if you don't have enough to you know, take it regularly twice a week, at least to have stuff on hand. Um, obviously, there's a lot of stuff we've pushed that's over the counter, um, but in terms of prescriptions, things like ivermectin and perhaps even nitazoxanide, I might have a way of getting it, but I'm really, you know, I have to, I have to work that out um, and see if we can get a sponsor who's willing to work with our program. So I'll let you know uh, within the next few days, but this is what's keeping me busy. Now, speaking of the prescriptions, obviously what is going on today is the greatest genocide. It is the greatest crime against humanity we have witnessed since the Holocaust, and it is not an exaggeration. There have been millions of people that have died. Millions. God knows how many millions messed up for life, even if they survived, from a bioweapon that likely the same people who created it are blocking treatment. Where you have doctors that are heroes, heroic doctors, and we're going to hear from a special, a very, very special doctor, perhaps the most special COVID doctor in the entire world in a couple minutes. And, and they're being persecuted. And it's not just in America. It's, this is a global problem. There's almost no country where there's no fight. Some are better than others. Some are worse than others. Um, but, you know, you have this cabal that is attacking people. You know, everyone's sending me these stories of doctors they found that saved their parents and... Then, uh, but they have to keep their name quiet because they'll lose their license. Imagine that. Like a guy saves someone from a virus that no one else claims to know how to treat, and they came up with it rather than w- winning a, a 
presidential medal, medal or some sort of congressional medal, they get persecuted. This is the biggest issue of our time, yet we can't get Republicans to talk about it. You know, I had two guests that I couldn't get on the show. I was going to have one on today, one tomorrow, and it's not the one we're going to have, uh, have on. I was going to have them on, and they were somewhat in the limelight already. It's not like their names weren't known, and they're like, Daniel, you know, I want to dial it back. That's how bad it is. A guy that has a great story to tell, oh, man, I've saved a 1,000 people. Here's what works. Nope, you're not allowed to talk about it. And the reason you're not allowed to is because it's getting more vicious. Think about this. Think about it. They announced here, this is from, uh, where is this? WTVB.com. Within hours of formal approval expected after the CDC advisor meeting scheduled for November 2nd to 3rd, this is on 5 to 11-year-old kids taking the shots. Doses will begin shipping to providers across the country along with smaller needles necessary for injecting young kids and within days will be ready to go into the arms of kids in a wide scale. See, what what they do is we'll, we'll hesitate, let's do trials, let's do this. What, what, what they understand and what our people never understood is that action speaks volumes. In people's minds, people don't look at something intellectually, are you right or wrong? If they see you're doing it, something that is being done widespread proves its efficacy or veracity in their minds, even if it isn't true. But they just do. So they're not going to dip their toe into it. They're going to do shock and awe. Approve. Boom, 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 boom. And they're going to have the mandates, the school. They're going to hit it from multiple ends in terms of availability, in terms of mandates. And before you know it, it's like you won't be able to catch your breath to ensure that there's not a second of a hiccup or hesitancy. Five to 11-year-old kids. We see menstrual, just the menstrual cycles alone. Why would you do that? Why? They don't care. Actually, they do care. They're doing it on purpose. So that's why they have to stop all treatment, persecute anyone. And again, they don't even work. Now, I I do have to announce... Because unlike the other side that just can never get disproven, they say false information. I did give you one piece of false information yesterday. I spoke about Dr. Andy Bostom's blog, go to andrewbostom.com, where he had data he got from a state legislator from the Department of Health that seemed to show 83% of the deaths last month, um, and, and roughly the same share of hospitalizations were among the fully vaccinated um, that was false information, but not, it's not my fault. It's not Andy's fault. And it's not that state rep's fault. It was the department of health. That's what they gave him. It was, they, they, they apologized. They sent a, a letter. He has a correction there. They said it was a computer glitch. So, you know, again, we try our best. Um, I don't like, you know, unverifiable claims, but this was a spreadsheet with hard data from the department of health given to a state legislator. I felt it was, you know, it, it did strike me as weird, that the way they're counting it, because the way they're counting it, it's hard to imagine that already last month, 83% of deaths, that it was that bad, that it's even worse. But again, we have the other data suggesting that you know th- those numbers were a little high, and they claim it's the only 30, 40% or so in their numbers. But as we noted, you know they're counting the partially vaccinated 
up to 14 days after the second shot, which accounts for the most serious cases. They count that all as unvaccinated. Um, and I think they're just lying anyway. They're not properly detailing it. We quoted from that PA in New York, Deborah Conrad, yesterday, who said that in her hospital, they were just straight up lying and they would only count the vaccinated as those who are vaccinated within their system. That didn't account for people who got vaccinated at any other you know, vaccine dr drive or pharmacy or whatever. So that certainly does apply. But again, those numbers cannot be used. And that was corrected by the Department of Health. Um, and I know some of you are probably thinking, well, Daniel, maybe the news got out and they were ticked off and they had to, maybe it was right and then their correction is wrong. I don't know. I mean, they did seem a little bit too high no matter how you slice it. Um, but I will tell you, again, we're seeing this elsewhere. Um, this is in Ireland. You know, in Ireland now, they're admitting in this place called Waterford, which has the highest vaccination rate of any county in Ireland, the majority of COVID-positive inpatients at University Hospital Waterford are, are fully vaccinated. Now, they don't say what percentage, but you got to believe it's, it's a lot. Now, they'll say almost every adult there is vaccinated, but the bigger question is, why is it that Waterford, the county with the highest vaccination rate, has the highest um, COVID rate? So again, it's not clear how long the hospitalizations lag, but certainly in terms of the transmission, we are seeing a reverse effect. That is clear, that they are transmitting it a lot more. So there is a lot more news I do want to get to. Um, another just public service announcement, a lot of you have personally benefited from the services of Dr. Eric Henson. Uh, the head neck surgeon ENT in Palestine, Texas. We had him on the show one time. He's the most generous guy in the world. He literally, I know a lot of you have told me he'll call you up personally. He'll follow up with you. He'll give you time. And he does it all for free. So, you know, we're all thinking, how do we repay him? And I said the best way to repay him is by helping him help more people. Right? He's not looking for money. He's not asking for anything. So we are, again, hopefully, as soon as we can get the LLC set up, going to have a donate page to his operation, which is going to be separate from his ENT specialty office. This is going to be just for treating COVID, so he could pay for um, particularly um, the people he sees inpatient in person that are in really bad, bad shape, and he has to do infusions and things like that for oxygen. Um, but I, I want to note two things. Um, number one... I'm not so familiar with which medical websites that rate doctors are the most impactful, but you really need to, if you can, go on there and give him give him a five-star rating, write a comment. Uh, and again, this is all coming from me. I never told him I was going to do this, but my wife thought of this because she saw that the person that was disgruntled that he wasn't wearing the mask and got him in trouble with the medical board you know, gave a bad rating there and said, oh, he doesn't wear a mask. Um don't make it all about COVID, you know, because if it's just about COVID, it's kind of weird. He's an ENT. Um, just, you know, talk about how responsive and compassionate and um, smart he is and whatever, you know, just, you know, you know how to do this. I think, I think it's just, it's only fair um, to help him. And the other thing is, all of you, I do ask if you were treated by him, if you could put out a video, testimonial, maybe a two minute video, if it's a couple, you and your wife or husband, spouse, um, just to, you know, and send that to me, dharowitz at blazemedia.com or Daniel Horowitz at startmail.com. 
and and just you know I'll, I'll I'm gonna try to get a guy I know who listens to the show who also was treated by him he's a filmmaker to maybe put these all together. The reason why we need that is because I'm seeing all these doctors, Henson including, getting hit up by these medical boards. And I'm like, where are all the patients? You know, like, hello, we're alive because of him. Like, you know, again, he doesn't need this for to advertise his clinic for business. He needs it to freaking save his license so he could help treat more people. So we got to help out with that. And um, those are two ideas I thought of last night. So, again, I really appreciate if you guys could help with that. But I do want to get to our special guest. Now, uh, today's uh, interview is sponsored by Better Spectacles. Um, We're going to hear from the best in his field of endocrinology. Well, the best in the field of eyewear is Rodenstock Eyewear. They are the gold standard, a German company with over 500 patents. Ronald Reagan himself wore Rodenstock. For our audience, they have Go Specs lenses, which my wife and I love. Um, you could they fit better. You could, um, and, and it's funny because we we did this is our first telehealth. You know, they were sent literally through an app, and they fit perfectly. They give you more energy, no neck strain, the ability to help you see up to forty percent better. Go to betterspectacles.com/slash/conservative to schedule a teleoptical appointment. Uh, that way, you don't have to leave your house. Uh, they're offering. Our audience, an introductory 61% off their Go Specs lenses plus free handcrafted Ronestock frames. Visit betterspectacles.com slash conservative. Never throw a junky pair of glasses away again. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now, folks, as I mentioned, our special guest today is one of the world's leading doctors when it comes to treating COVID, and he's not an American. And one of the, one of the beautiful things about this movement that I've been uh, really blessed to be a part of is that we've seen people from all different backgrounds, all different countries, no money to be made, no power to be had, all people with their backs against the wall, finding patients that are in sudden uh, pulmonary distress, thousands at a time and they don't know what to do and literally the best science is discovered out of a time of need by accident that's always been the case so when we start with hydroxy and ivermectin and other things i never heard of this stuff heck i couldn't even pronounce it when i first heard about this stuff i'm not a doctor so i had no idea i'm a political guy but then i said to myself wait a minute wait a minute i know that when it comes to remdesivir Gilead has billions of dollars to be made hinging off of every word of people like Anthony Fauci. Whereas when it came to hydroxychloroquine and any cheap off-patent, um, you know, off-label, but very safe, long-used drug, there was no dog in the fight. There was no money to be made. So who are you going to believe? One of these doctors that really pioneered all of these treatments, and frankly, a lot of what is done in America by the few doctors willing to try comes from this source, Dr. Flavio Caragiani is a leading endocrinologist, world-renowned in sports medicine as well. 
Um, in addition to being an MD, to obtained both his master's and PhD in clinical endocrinology. He's part of the committee in Brazil that establishes treatment protocols for its national health system. He's a visiting professor, uh, faculty of Floriano in Brazil. He also is one of the lead physicians um, for the FLCCC, which you're all familiar with by now, together with uh, doctors Merrick and Corey. And he has so much information to give us from his experience. Uh, Dr. Cadigiani, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, I thank you for the opportunity to share some of our discoveries here and what we've been doing here, our experience, as well as the scientific back that is sort of being hidden actively in order to suppress options of treatments for COVID-19. So I want to start from the beginning. Um, yeah. How you got into this. So in America, um, we saw this, we heard about this in other countries, where this is the first ailment in the history of medicine where there was a complete, it wasn't a ban at the beginning, but a complete black hole on any early outpatient treatment. And despite the fact that early on, anyone who's a doctor, even a layman could see it had a potential for, th for thrombosis, pulmonary inflammation, and we absolutely do have on-label drugs to deal with that, and no one was treating it. There were very few doctors that got into it. You're a specialist. How did you get into the treatment of COVID-19? Well, that's a very good question. Well, uh, before ever anything, there are two. Uh, I'm, I'm an endocrinologist, a specialist, but I also act as their overall doctor, family doctor. So I do kind of both because being an endocrinologist, you need to be a very good clinician because hormones, their actions, their actions go um, in full, whole body, all the systems. So then there are two uh, parallel ways that I went into the story. The first one is that uh, in April, in April of last year, I published a paper suggesting that a drug called spironolactone could be helpful for COVID-19 because it increases the amount of circulating ACE2. ACE2 is the in, uh, the protein through which the virus, SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, entering into the cells. When it's circulating, it could theoretically neutralize the virus and, and prevent its entry into the cells. So that was my first uh, publish. That was a hypothesis I published as a letter to the editor. There was a group of researchers from Spain and in the U.S. that were noticing that males were unproportionately being more affected than females. And this, uh, counting for all the variables, age, uh, presence of comorbidities, and all other confounding variables. Yep. In addition to that, uh, in the ICU in Spain, early, early or late March of 2020, they realized that there were a lot of bald men there in the ICE. And that caught attention because there was a lot, really. Uh, they seemed to be more affected than no bald men, something that we call in medicine as androgenic alopecia. So and bald then, men, so you're saying bald men were having this worse. Exactly. Mm. And that was... That was uh, more thoroughly analyzed and was confirmed. Also, adjusting for confounding variables, being bald remained as an independent risk factor. 
This was further confirmed by different groups. The last group was in Peru. They published a thing. There, according to them, this was even a more important risk factor than obesity, for example. But that varies, you know, because there is one thing about this, about COVID-19 that nobody talks about, is that when there is a new variant, it's like there is a new disease because the characteristics of transmission, pathogenicity, their ability to cause harm changes a lot, just like as being a new disease. So I can tell you that any treatment, as well as the vaccines, are not applicable for new variants. So all the researches that proved, uh, for example, a certain drug, like those very expensive antivirals, it's very unlikely that they will be as effective for new variants, especially mm -hmm. those who act directly in the virus. So new variants in SARS-CoV-2, uh, unlike the previous viruses, they cause different disease. So we need to consider this as being a new disease from a clinical perspective. So Bob Mann, coming back again. So we, we discovered that uh, 80 to 90 percent of the SARS-CoV-2 entry depended on a new, another protein called Tempers-T. Tempers-T is the sole endogenous regulator are the androgens and depends on two factors. The level of androgens, which its main representative is testosterone, and also the level of uh, the sensibility of its receptor. So being bald is a clinical and easy to notice uh, characteristic that the androgen is quite uh, it's overexpressed. And consequently, the expressions of uh, the expression of temperature in, uh, in the tissues is above the average, above what we would expect, we would expect for no bald man. So that was the rationale, the background, the, the biological plausibility together with the clinical observation leading us to hypothesize this androgen theory. So that's the first So if first I could part. explain this just to our, our listeners who aren't doctors, so you have the Temperus 2 and the ACE2 are the main on-ramps for the virus to enter the cells, and it seems like people that had high levels of the male hormone, which was indicated often in bald men, that they, they seem to be getting this worse because they had more, I guess more, you're saying more ACE2 real estate, more more ACE2s to, 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 to house the virus? Actually, they have more Tempers 2. Tempers 2 mm. prepares the virus to enter into the cell through ACE2. Ah, got it. Okay, so yeah. those people were getting bad. And I could say that all of our audience, we've seen this, especially, and I want to get to Delta and where we are now, but especially before July in America, I literally don't know a human being in my life where the husband got it better than the wife. It was always the husband when he had a couple, even if they were the same. I, I would have couples where the wife was 71 and the husband was, let's say, 63, much younger even, and the husband got it much worse, even if he was in good shape and didn't have comorbidities. So this made a lot of sense. And this is where you saw that androgen blockers, you talked about um, spironolactone, uh, potentially work. So let's maybe take it from there. So you did research into um, proxalutamide, um, which is one of the androgen blockers. What did you discover in your data and in just your clinical use of it? So um, from them, so talking about the anti-androgens, uh, proxalutamide, was the only molecule that we received donations. So first of all, it doesn't mean that the other androgen blockers do not work. 
So we were not able to obtain other like other drugs like bicalutamide or flutamide, or even dutasteride is the first, which was the first androgen blocker that we used here mm. for the research. And I can tell you one thing. Uh, I could tell you about the Delta, what I think about the Delta and the upcoming variants that we need, we must expect. I don't think that we, we should expect further variants. So the, the androgen blockers, how did you went up with that? Chronic users experimented uh, a milder disease compared to non-users. So for example, males that used dutasteride had a fewer chance to develop severe disease or went to, or to go to the hospital or even among hospitalized men in Spain, those who used dutasteride for prostate, they had a 90% less uh, chance to need of ICU compared to non-users. Okay, so and so we have all this data. Also, women with excess of testosterone or androgens, what we call uh, hyperandrogenism, the most common disease of hyperandrogenism is. PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, that affects between 10 to 15% of women. These women experimented a more severe disease compared to women without it. So, so again, women with the higher male hormones, I've heard from ICU doctors here that they tell me among the women there, those are the ones. They find it's those women seem to really get it bad. Exactly. So we, we demonstrated it here, and this was further reproduced by the UK, for example. So when you have findings that are consistent across different and independent groups, it really gives consistency to the findings and evidence. So this is very important. Also, it may explain why prepubertal children uh, have a very mild disease, because they don't have tempers too expressed. So everything fits, you know, even among children, those with those below one year old, they have something called mini puberty. So babies oh. are at higher risk than children between one and 10 years old, for example. Wow. So everything fits. Yeah. So this, with the chronic use, observing that chronic use could lead to benefits. We started the trials with dutasteride, spironolactone, just coming back again, spironolactone, in addition to its actions on ACE2, it has anti-androgen actions, okay? So that's the reason why I joined, uh, to the, I joined the research group. And then we started with these two, and we were very successful, especially for dutasteride. Uh, we, had, we had a decrease in the number of, uh, we had a decrease in the number of days into recovery, uh, viral uh, clearance, in seven days was like three times faster, uh, three times higher at the day seven. And with these, uh, we wanted to, to try uh, other anti-androgens, other androgen blockers more potent because we considered that by that time, we, we considered that more little uh, variants of SARS-CoV-2 could, uh, could come, would really happen. Which certainly so happened in Brazil. We certainly yeah, saw yeah. that. So, because we have a website here, c19early.com, and it lists all the studies on therapeutics. And right there on the top is proxalutamide, is, you know, 84% decrease in deaths, I think, in 
in your study from the control group. And we were like, what? What is that? What in the world is that? What does that have to do with anything? How in the world is that antiviral? So you just explained that that the, the androgen levels really determine how much it gets in the cells. So one quick question on that before we move on to other drugs. Um, so I understand how you explain it's an antiviral. But let's say someone's in the hospital, they're experiencing that cytokine storm, their their blood oxygen level is struggling to get above 90, 95 certainly. Um, so they're having that inflammatory response. Do, do, do these um, androgen blockers, do they have any anti-inflammatory qualities? Yeah, so the reason why we went we first our first hypothesis that is that this would only work in the first days of symptoms mm. but then we were we had a sort of an issue during our clinical trial with proxalutamide because we were in the transition to the p1 or gamma variant which was completely different so for example patient patient with three days of symptoms in the previous variants came with came up with a crp which is the main uh, inflammatory marker of 3.0 uh, milligrams per liter, whereas a patient from the with this new variant came up with 100, 150 uh, milligrams per liter with only three days of symptoms. So we had a mix between these two variants during our trial, but there's nothing we could do. What happened is we tested inflammatory and, and thrombosis markers on day zero and day one in outpatients. I want because they were outpatients and they needed they didn't need hospitalization. We, I didn't see their, I didn't check their blood exams on day zero, but I checked on day one. And many of them, all from the same arm, experimented a reduction, a dramatic reduction on inflammatory and thrombose markers. Even if they're not, they were not using glucocorticoid, anti-inflammatory, or anticoagulant agents. Wow. So that what has what is happening here? Because this is not only antiviral. Because if it was antiviral actions. If this was a consequence of the reduction in the viral loads, the reduction of these markers wouldn't be so fast. So because it, it already replicated and you're already getting the response, right? I mean, exactly, wow. exactly. So this allowed us hypothesize to to do to extend the research to hospitalize patients. And for the P1 variant, there is a paper just published as preprint a couple of weeks ago showing that the gamma variant is four times more lethal than the Delta. So everyone in America heard about this. Everyone here heard about the news stories from Brazil that people were dying left and right. So you're saying, because we can never tell, the, the news is so just all over the place. Um, but you're saying what you had in Brazil was really bad. Let me ask you, is that why the gamma never really spread that much outside of Brazil because it was so virulent? Exactly. If we think about Ebola, for example, even though it was highly little, it didn't spread. So it's a, it's a lot in the viruses. Viruses that are less pathogenic tend to spread, uh, that tend to be more successful in, the, in their expansion. So the P1, thankfully, did not go too much abroad. So we, it remained here, which was, and this is the main reason why we had so many deaths here. It's completely, it was a completely different story. Even these patients, the speed, they were not responding to high dose glucocorticoids any longer. They were not responding to anticoagulants, even at high doses. So they were like, their lungs were like 90, 90 95% affected. 
Mm. And these started in the Amazon because there, there is a, an explanation for that uh, hypothesis, actually. There is a mix because in the, in the, Brazil is a very heterogeneous country. We have uh, a mix between highly developed cities and regions sure. uh, with Asia. And in the north, it's not as developed. And there is a, the number of, co, uh, of households per, per, per home is like seven to eight people living in the same house. So we have wow. like micro agglomerations circulating viruses and our indigenous people the indigenous in brazil they are they do not have so much contact with the the rest of the, the rest country. of the country so i, so, I want i wanted to get to that to your your okay. experience with with the amazon the indigenous population i guess we'll mix together some of the discussion on some of the drugs and trials you did together with a little bit of the epidemiology here so you mentioned the gamma and i remember when dr corey was telling me about just the terrible disease you were seeing down there. And I was like, wow, that, that sounds bad. I'm glad we don't have it here. Then what happened was around July um, is when we got what they called the Delta Wave in the southern states of the United States, Florida, Texas, Louisiana, states like that. And it took us by surprise because when we saw Delta in Western Europe, in England, which got it about, I'd say, six weeks earlier than us, May into June, it really wasn't bad, and in fact, the media there referred to it as a cold. So much so that they were concerned that people were just walking around with it, didn't care, spreading it. They had a lot of cases, very few deaths. You see the decoupling between deaths and cases on the charts. It looked very clear. So we laughed it off. Oh, okay, it's like a cold. It's Mueller's ratchet. It's getting, as we talked about, more transmissible, but less virulent. Fine. And and because if it's very virulent, like the gamma, it won't be that transmissible. Okay. But then, within a couple weeks into late July, August, a living hell broke out in these states where, you know, I have a national audience, and last year I'd get uh, questions from people, what do I do, could you connect me with some doctors, we have, my, my parents are on a ventilator. Well, now I got emails, my son is on a ventilator. I lost a 30-year-old of mine, um, you know, a listener to my audience uh, here, 30-year-old, I don't think he had any issues. This was just crushing people. It was spreading more um, prolifically. It was more widespread. And it just, the, the time from the viral replication to the inflammatory stage seemed to be quicker. And before July, it was like, as long as you throw something at this thing, you got rid of it. Anyone who died was really because they, they didn't treat them at all. It, it was, it was for almost anyone, it was so easy to treat. But then it just changed. It changed. So could you talk a little bit about what your theory is behind that and what you see this version of it is still responding to in terms of treatment? So uh, the Delta variant uh, has, uh, is, is clearly uh, worse than the variants we had last year. And I think... Uh, uh, Delta variant depends more on temperature two than the previous ones. So this is one important point. Another point is that Delta variant timing matters. Timing for treatment matters more because I think this. Uh, I think that it ability, it, the ability to contain the virus with treatments is higher. But if you allow the virus to spread into the body to replicate. It may cause uh, a worse inflammatory, uh, worse inflammatory reaction, way worse compared to the previous variants that you guys had in the U.S., for example. 
So that's the reason why we are seeing people being affected by the Delta variant that wouldn't be as affected in the previous variants. So timing, the treatment timing matters more than it used to matter. So that's the reason. And also, when it's late, uh, the treatments will be less effective than the treatments that used to be. For example, if you started a treatment on day eight with ivermectin in the first variants, it really, it worked. Yeah. It doesn't work anymore because the timing matters more. So it, with the later it is, the worse will be the, the, the effectiveness of these attempts compared to the same day number of days of symptoms on the last year. Maybe here in Brazil, when Delta, Delta entered here, it took a little bit longer, but it did. The number, the number of deaths reduced dramatically, but because we were attacking very much in the very beginning, mm. because we were used to the gamma one. But we, in the, indeed, when the patient were not, patients were not treated or not uh, managed in the first days, they, got, they went really worse. They went really bad. So we did see that gamma, that delta was a disease that if not approached early, went way worse than it used to be last year. It went almost as, as bad as gamma if they were hospitalized. But that's... So wow. you needed to treat, there was a need to treat before. So that the emergency, but because we were used to the gamma, we were using higher doses and more, uh, more uh, no, higher, no, a larger, a higher number of drugs, a combination with more drugs at higher doses because we were traumatized by the gamma variant and in the very early beginning. But just like Dr. Pierre Corey said, they were not, they do not respond as well when they are hostilized. This is true. So in hospital treatments are not working even for a Delta as it didn't work for Gamma. So that's the reason I think that we went, we were not experimenting. And this thing about waiting for this, the elite evidence to start treating patients is one of the worst crimes we are committing against humanity because the, the patient, patient cannot wait for the elite evidence to come out. Patient will die before. So you need to be, so we need to be careful. It's something there's the likelihood of causing harm is very, very low. And there's a chance of bringing benefits. It doesn't need to have the best, the 1A level of evidence. If there's not, if, if other options are not present, if you don't have other better options, I cannot see a reason why not treating patients. The likelihood of benefits is way higher than the likelihood of causing harm. Even if the benefits are not crystal clear, if even if you don't, if you even if you say that, okay, it's not confirmed that ivermectin works, for example, okay, but there's a likelihood, it's likely works, even if it's not confirmed according to meta-analysis. So that's the reason why you shouldn't be so focused on that. It doesn't change that much the balance, but you need to have the balance. And also what calls attention is that if it really didn't work, I don't think there would be a fight against treatments. So that's another point that calls my attention. Well, we, we, we seem to only find that the things that work are under attack. If they don't work, they, they, uh, they don't mind them so much. But, but we are I'm, – I'm hearing from a lot of American doctors we had on this show that um, you know, certainly early ivermectin – uh, certainly the 0.4, at least 0.4 milligrams instead of 0.2, people seem to be responding to them very well. Um, the dutasteride, everyone seems to say good things about. Uh, we don't have proxalutamide here. I guess it's not it's not available here. 
Um, but what, what a lot of my audience is interested in hearing about, which it seems to be a big mystery, I'm not a doctor, and I sit and look at literature just from the bottom up. And I started reading about ivermectin, and I was like, wow, I've never seen a drug where there's such a broad spectrum of studies that speak about it with such affinity. Wow, this is a broad mechanism of action, so safe. And, and then I saw nitazoxanide, and I never heard of it. I couldn't even pronounce it. I didn't know what it was. And I saw the same thing. They're like, wow, broad mechanisms of action, really safe, used on, used on young children for diarrhea. And I'm like, wait a minute. You know, ivermectin for most people is holding up, but we are having a problem if they don't get on it early enough. So we need maybe a little bit more power behind this. So I'm thinking, what if we got nitazoxanine? And well, now we can't really get it here and it's hard to get it. We're working on trying to get it. You're the one who was really behind most of the literature behind this. Could you talk about your clinical and academic experience with nitazoxanide? Yeah. First of all, I need to, I must tell you that I did not believe in treatments at all. Okay. So I was the person of a new hypothesis. I didn't believe, which doesn't mean that I was criticizing anything. I am a, a, a true scientist that is humanized believes that patient deserves the best. So during the absence of options, you should treat what you have in mind, uh, what you have in, uh, with the strongest uh, biological plausibility, even if the clinical evidence is not there. So, and we are forgetting about the compassionate use, because maybe because you're losing compassion during this pandemics. I think the compassionate use went to the garbage together with the compassion that we were having in the early in the earliest times of the pandemics. So we I started an observational study, which means that I could not interfere in treatments. And I was following up patients. It, it uh, we included almost 600 patients, those who were being treated with hydro, hydroxychloroquine or nitazoxanide or ivermectin or a combination to with or without androgen blockers. And what called my attention is that the untreated patients went way worse, way worse under than those treated with any of these. So this called my attention for something called clinical equipoise. Goodness, I can no longer not offer something to my patients because the differences were so overwhelming. Even, even underestimating the benefits of treatments and even overestimating the risks of the treatments and underestimating the risks of non-treatments. Even under this scenario, very highly conservative scenario of comparisons, we went, we ended up, we ended up with great differences. So for because of these, our all of our trials did not provide full placebo. This is the first point. In, in other words, meaning you didn't have a control group where they weren't getting any treatment. They were all getting at least either hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin or one of them. No, no, actually, there was a control group of no, that were not being treated. And comparing to the untreated group, the differences were massive in a matter that was it was simply impossible to be attributed to confounding factors. So that's the reason, because remember, this was an observational study. We did not interfere. We did not provide any intervention. We just followed patients. And they were referred by different doctors, doctors that treated, doctors that did not treat. We just followed them up. And differences in hospitalizations, mechanical ventilations, deaths, and in the top of that, post-COVID syndrome, post-COVID symptoms were massive. So this is something I think that outcome should not only be mortality, mm. but also 
All patients under all these trials should be followed up longitudinally uh, during months to check whether and how intense are the post-COVID symptoms. So we also found these differences in these post-COVID uh, symptoms, including mental and physical symptoms. And then from this, we convinced the IRBs, the ethics committees in Brazil, that the trials that we were conducting after that could never have a full placebo. So we did this. We gave a basic standard of care, which was nitazoxanide plus azithromycin added on dutasteride or not. So actually all our trials were not a drug, was add-on therapies, okay? So why? Because nitazoxanide performed better, at least to us, than hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. Really? That, yeah. That's big news to people in this country. Again, everyone in my audience, now everyone in the country, but only because they were trashing it and negative about it, has heard of ivermectin. Um, they heard of hydroxychloroquine because of President Trump last year. Um, but nobody in this country really knows about nitazoxanide. So you're telling me, so we're, we're here, people are very desperate. Um, it's getting very bad now in the northern part of the country because the seasonality moves north. And ivermectin's hard to get a hold of because they've declared war on it. And I'm looking for different options, how to connect people with some of the doctors affiliated with this show and how to, how to treat people. And you're telling me there's a drug out there that you are saying in your experience performed better than ivermectin, and and and, and this is the gamma. This is the gamma. No, no, that was no, that was between June and August of last year. So last year, so that was the 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 original before, strain, the wild strain. Okay. There's a point there. Ivermectin was used as a, they prescribed as at a very low dose and short duration. So it was like the majority used 0.2 for a single day. 0.2 so for a single day. Okay. 0.2 with a single day, nitazoxanide went uh, performed better. So that's a main point because at that time, the protocols were suggesting to use this dose at, at a single dose of 0.2 milligrams per kilogram. So that's the reason may, why nitazoxanide may have performed better. But there's another point on the top of that. The combination of nitazoxanide with ivermectin did better than each one alone. Okay, so that's what I cannot sleep at night until I feel we try this. Um, this is, this is I, I, I can't get this out of my mind, that there might be something so cheap um, you said it's $4 or $5 uh, for a treatment of nitazoxanide in, uh, in Brazil. I know it's cheap in Mexico as well for the people that live near the border here that go across the border and could get it there. Um, but here it's not really available in America. Uh, there's a whole scandal. It was bought up. Um, it was on our coupons that we have on the GoodRx uh, coupon. It was the same price as, as ivermectin originally. But then when these media articles came out about it being used, um, so then it, it's just so expensive. So I, w- I want to make sure that this is something that, that is worth w- worthwhile to try. So you feel do you feel that, you know, with this variation of the virus turning out to be very aggressive very quickly, um, you think if we could get a hold of nitazoxanide, there would be a synergistic um, efficacy of the two of them together. Could you just speak plain, as plainly as you can to people that don't have a medical background? Um, what are the mechanisms of action with nitazoxanide as distinguished from ivermectin? How, how, does, it, how does it work? 
Well, at first, uh, it sounds weird to combine two drugs that uh, uh, that are used for the same diseases, right? Because both are antiparasitic. So they would choose one or other, but not both, right? That would be our our first uh, thinking, oh, the way of thinking about these drugs. But there's a point. Nitazoxanide is already officially indicated for HOTA viruses and other viruses here as well. Hmm. So it's it's not new that it's an antiviral agent. And there's a paper back there that acted against influenza. In 2014, there was a paper published showing that. So so the background for nitazoxanide. But even though they are they they are used for the same diseases, they act in completely different sites. So nitazoxanide acts in the release of interferon and uh, interferons. So it basically acts uh, preventing the uh, ketokine storms. Okay. So that's the reason why uh, research, the research published with nitazoxanide did not see much differences in terms of viral loads, but it did see differences in terms of clinical outcomes because it prevents the, the consequences of the virus. So it seems, so they act in completely different sites than ivermectin. Ivermectin is a, is a wide spectrum anti-inflammatory immune uh, modulatory agent. So we have all these. And I can give you, I will give you uh, an unprecedented new. We just found in our research with ivermectin, I can tell you, we can have a whole program talking about this. We had a program here with, with 220,000 people with ivermectin for prophylaxis. And what we noticed that the most important aspect to prevent is the accumulated doses of ivermectin. The higher was the number of pills taken along the year, the higher was the protection. So wow. above a certain dose, there were no deaths in a 20, 220,000 population. And this was in Brazil? Yeah. In 220,000 city... people prophylaxis. So you're telling me if someone was taking it, you know, twice a week for five months before they got the virus, as opposed to someone taking it once a week for a few weeks before, you noticed the difference. Well, and it was linear, it was dose dependent. So mm. that caused more attention, which shows that more, the better. At a certain point that above a certain, above a certain amount, there were no deaths at all. So you're telling me that this is very important because, you know, everyone sees and, and so I'm not into anecdotes. We all like data, but I think we all agree that there's a time where sometimes anecdotes are even better than data. In other words, sometimes if it's working, it's working. And everyone attests to the fact that it's working for them um, to varying degrees. But you're you're saying something that I always wondered. I said, wait a minute. We know the mechanisms of action make sense. We have Dr. Ryan Cole here has listed eight mechanisms of action, six of them antiviral, one anti-inflammatory, one anticoagulant. We know it should work. We know it does work. We see it. But, you know, especially with this variant, depending on when you catch it, it's a little bit more spotty, and we all agree to that. But I always wondered, I said, who says we're getting the dosages right? We know from the research on some of the cancer trials, um, breast cancer uh, and, and the use of ivermectin, that they were using five milligrams for, for weeks on end, I think, in some of those trials, and, and it was very safe. So you're, you're, you're hypothesizing that it could be that if you had some dose that's maybe higher than what we're using, it would, it, it would be close to 100% or as close as you can get to knocking it out. 
Exactly. Or if you, the longer for the longer you take, the more protected you are because of it seems to be like chronic effects. So, for example, in the same research, we found that even without any treatment during COVID, those who were hospitalized that used ivermectin prophylactically, they had almost 50 percent uh, lower uh, in hospital mortality rates already adjusted for all variables. So it means that uh, it had residual effects, but now we realize that actually it's not only residual, but it's chronic effects. It, it probably makes some uh, structural changes to protect the host. This is a hypothesis because this is a, I'm telling you, for example, it mitigated all risk factors. So those with high diabetes or hypertension that are naturally at higher risk of uh, developing severe COVID, the risk was reduced to zero compared to those without high diabetes wow. or hypertension. And, and yeah. that makes sense. Even in my mind, it makes sense because... But I didn't believe in that until I saw the data. But, 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 but it makes a lot of sense because the risk factors seem to only come in when you get the cytokine storm. A healthier person might be able to weather it, whereas someone with, with those uh, uh, comorbidities, it's going to interact with their conditions and be more likely to cause a pulmonary embolism and other issues. Um, but if you if you head it off at the gate, um, if you block off the temporis two, you block off that ACE two binding, then it shouldn't matter what your story is. It just blocks it at the gate, and it's just it's so sad what you're saying because so many millions of people have died. Life has been so disruptive. We've done everything you could possibly do to a civilization to try to avoid this. And if you compare the simple disruption of simply taking you know, two pills a week or something, if you would have had the whole population on it. And 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 again, it's only expensive now because they've made a black market. They've, they've banned it. But this is off patented. The government, we, we've, we've spent in our country trillions, trillions of dollars on COVID on stuff like remdesivir, $3,000 a treatment. It doesn't work. It cannot work at the inflammatory stage, if it, even if it works at the viral stage. It causes renal issues and liver toxicity listed on NIH's own website, and they still use it. And I'm thinking like, you know, you we could have done this, and they're like, well, we don't know. We don't know the dosages. Well, why don't you study the dosages? Why don't you let us do that and see, could we go to 0.8? Could we go to one milligram? Do you need to? For whom? At what time? Should we prophylax on it? And it's, it's, it's insane that we haven't overturned these stones when you've seen such signals by trying to do what you can do. We're almost out of time. Just some brief questions. So are you saying, do you recommend back to nidazoxanide that it should be an adjunct together with ivermectin? Ideally, yes. Okay, and 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 but not prophylaxis. Prophylaxis, uh, I did, I did, uh, I followed up two hundred patients that are my regular patients taking nitazoxanide twice weekly, and none of them got COVID at all during, and <laughs> they were not vaccinated. None of them got COVID at all. And all of them had fam uh, had people, their husbands or children or parents or brothers who had COVID and, uh, and were then for like days into the diagnosis, breathing the same house, breathing together, never got it. There was not a single case. So it's highly unlikely this to be only by chance, right? Wow. And, and this was gamma. In two gamma, yeah. Because that is because uh, you're telling me vaccinated ready after the vaccine came out. Yeah, That's this year. Yeah, 
as well. That's so very for- telling because I'll tell so- you with the Delta, which yeah. is very aggressive, you know, beforehand, anyone we knew prophylaxing on ivermectin, they absolutely did not get COVID. Whereas now, they get it. I mean, it's very, very, very mild. Maybe, you know, they'll get 99 fever for a day, but they'll definitely get it. They'll definitely test positive. So that's very telling that you said you had some, again, not in the scientific method, but certainly clinical observation. You had patients taking nidazoxanide prophylactically, and they weren't getting the gamma. Very, very aggressive, perhaps the most aggressive strain we've seen. Um, and, and as far as the later, the other end of the spectrum, the later stage, so even with this... Um, it's hard to tell because the hospitals have basically banned it, so we don't have such a good sample. But we do have experience, even with this variant, that there still are people where we crush up, and I can't say where publicly, but we crush up 0.4 milligrams of ivermectin into a Gatorade uh, container and we pass it on to the person, and they're turned around in eight hours. Again, it's not going to be 100%, but assuming there's no organ failure and it's just a matter of that the SATs are, un- are not under control, they're having the cytokine storm, it didn't cause too much damage yet, we are finding it does turn people around. Does nitazoxanide have that anti-inflammatory uh, a- uh, mechanism? Probably, yes. There was a study uh, published by a group here in Brazil that tested in hospitalized patients, and they did see differences. So they were not severe, okay, but they were moderate. Uh, remembering, just to remind, as a reminder, hostilized, I don't like very much the hostilized as being a criteria because here when we were in the peak of the gamma variants, hostilized were always, all of them were, all of them were very severe because the criteria for hostilization changed. So, but this was conducted before that and was conducted with variant before and they did find differences. So it has, it does have some anti-inflammatory effects. Wow. But again, this wow. is but it was in the previous variant. So that's my point of concern is that would this work at best at the dosage dosage that they used without a combination with other drugs? We need to remember that viruses are usually only treated with combination of drugs. For example, the HIV cocktail. When it was used only a single drug, it didn't work very well. When you combine different drugs, it started to work. The same for hepatitis B or C. So virus, viruses, they have a very complex pathophysiology with multiple sites of actions. So it's, it's a bit hard to, to believe that a single drug could work alone. Sure. The only reason why vermectin works a lot is because it's multi-action drug. Multi-action. In other words, there's a lot of different doors for the virus to enter, so you got to close a few of them, which, again, is why some of these studies are ridiculous. 40%, 30%, 50%. Um, as we always say here, you get uh, some of our Patriot doctors here, they're close to 100% because it's having the right clinician at the right time for the right person with the right symptoms. It's, we used to call that medicine, uh, but now <laughs> somehow, some, somehow it's a novel idea. Um, we're way over time, but this has been really engaging. I just want to end with, um, could you talk about some of your experience in the Amazon a little bit, some of the cities you travel to, a very underserved population, lots of people living in the same household, very vulnerable, obviously, for severe illness. What were some of the success stories that you saw? So the most success story I had was in a city uh, called Kowari. It was in the middle of the Amazon. We were traveling uh, through different cities. All of them had their hospitals packed. Uh, oxygen not being sufficient for everyone was completely uh, was a complete uh, disaster. 
Then we, we went to the city called Quarry and we went to their hospital. We were followed with their city mayor and the secretary, secretary of health. And then in this hospital, there was full, it was empty actually, not full at all. It was, there, was, there were almost no patients. Thank so goodness, it doesn't look like we're in the middle of the Amazon, middle in the, of the outbreak, of the gamma variant outbreak. And then I, I found that's why the reason why we did not conduct any study there. We did not find patients. Why? Then I, I was finding very suspicious. And what is happening here? Why is that? There is a very important point. Treatment was suppressed in the Amazon as anywhere else, more than anywhere else in Brazil, because that's where they conducted that little dose hydroxychloroquine trial showing that the hydroxychloroquine kills. That was the place where it was conducted that study. Wow. So the treatment was suppressed in the north, in the Amazon, more than anywhere else in Brazil. So then in this specific place, the secretary of health was kind of, uh, she, was, she was trying to tell me something, but she was not able to. And then she called me in the end of the visit uh, to tell me, well, can I tell you something, but it must be only between us. We pro now it's not only between us because I'm sharing this story, but uh, we were providing here ivermectin for the whole population since the beginning, and this did not happen in any other city. Very, and then I said, goodness, really? I said yes. And ever, how? What's the percentage of the city that took it? She said, well, barely everyone, basically everyone. And then there such a coincidence because uh, Corey was in the middle of cities that were experimenting huge outbreaks and they were empty. So there was, and if you see the graphs, it, it, it is represented in the graphs. If you see the graphs comparing different cities, it's quite visible. It's very easy to notice the difference. We'll have to put so, that out to the audience because that's fascinating because what you're telling me sounds very similar to the stories from Uttar Pradesh in, exactly. in, in, in India, where it, it it's not just that, okay, they had a curve and it went down. It went down so quickly, and then it flatlined. There's nothing. There's not 240 million people there, 10 cases a day. There's just nothing there, and something just doesn't it, – it, it can't be explained by seasonality because it's it's different than anything else. So you're saying you have that same story there. Um, so what I want to know, final question, and, and we, we really have to do this again. This has been a tremendous – I appreciate your time, and our audience certainly appreciates this information – um, because we don't, we don't get this. We don't get this here. Um, America is, is now is turned into a third world country. You can't, you can't get treatment. It's, um, it's truly unbelievable. Um, so we, here we have something called the Congressional Medal of Honor. So I'm assuming you won some equivalent award in, in the, you know, some sort of in, in the parliament in, in Brazil for your work, right? I'm assuming you were, uh, you won a big award for saving so many lives. Um, what is it? 2000 people you treated or so? Yeah, yeah, 2,400, uh, yeah. And, and, and how many people uh, died? Zero, none, zero. Zero out of 2,400. 20, so I'm assuming you won, you know, like, like a congressional medal type of thing there for what you did? No, not at all. The opposite. I'm just being accused of crime against humanity. A crime so, against humanity. Well, because you should have let them die. Exactly, exactly. That's a message. They're um, doing right now. The upper house, the Senate is accusing me of that. Exactly. So... Yeah, and I know this is ongoing with you, and that's why I really – our audience doesn't even realize how amazing it is you've given us this time today because you have your own legal battles on hand. So 
what is so disappointing is because we all think we need to move from America and find another place. But it seems like this is a global problem now that you're not allowed to treat COVID. Exactly. Um, so it's, do they have any other alternatives that are saying, well, we don't think your cocktail works, but we have a better cocktail? No, of course, they didn't, they didn't offer other options. No other uh, options. It's important, it's, important, it's important to tell that uh, the battle against treatments is directly related to the capacity of a country to buy vaccines and expensive drugs. Even though Brazil is a third world, world country, we, our health system is able to buy very expensive medicines and massive amounts of vaccines. So that's why they actively worked against treatments here as well. Very coincidentally, so medicine, just one point, we, we are seeing the failure of science when we see all these observations and we are saying that they're, they're just huge coincidences. They, what I observed in the Amazon, what we observed in India, just saying that they are just coincidences. This is a complete failure, failure of science because observation is the basis of science. And under the uncertainty and lack of other options, we must use observations to treat patients. And they could say, oh, this does, it doesn't treat, it doesn't help. Of course, it's very convenient to have trials trying low dose without combinations and offering for patients in a range of 14 days of symptoms. So the wrong patient, the wrong treatment, it's very mm. convenient to have these trials being conducted and showing that it doesn't work. And, and that's the thing. They made up a baseline dose. And then they're like, well, in order to get it to work, it has to be really high. But who says that's high? I mean, we who you know, that, that's the thing. We weren't dosing it properly. And we know from the cancer trials, they were using it a lot higher without problems. Um, you know, what, what, what we have here in America is something worse than that, what you're describing. It's not just, oh, we don't have a better alternative or we're very strict and we want, you know, a bunch of uh, double-blinded randomized, randomized placebo-controlled trials. It's that we have in America now, remdesivir is the only standard of care. It's not outpatient, but it's inpatient. It's the only standard of care. And it costs $3,000 a pop, and it has negative efficacy. So we had a University of Iowa um, study published in the Journal of American Medical Association, and it said it, it had a longer period of time in the hospital for them. And there's a lot of concern that it's causing kidney failure and people's fluids back up and it cho they wound up drowning in their, in their fluids. But it looks very similar to just the pulmonary problems that people die from COVID and there's no studies being done on that. So it's like, I thought, wow, if ivermectin's not good enough, the thing you're going to use, boy, the data is going to be amazing behind it. And it has negative data and they won't get off of it. They won't, they won't stop it. There's no movement to stop it. Not a single doctor in America will look you in the eye and tell you it works. Do you have a similar thing going on in Brazil? Are they using remdesivir or other failed therapeutics? Yeah, we have with convalescent plasma. So they're trying <laughs> convalescent plasma everywhere all the time, even though we know it uh, induces new variants and it has a risk of thrombosis. But it costs, uh, it's expensive here. And interestingly, they're being used by private hospitals that want to keep their patients hospitalized. So nothing could work too much. So the hospitals could make money over patients. I, Remember, I, the peak of the cause was just a point. The rest, they were they, they complained in the beginning of the pandemics that were they were not having profits anymore when doctors were prescribing treatments in the ER. 
<laughs> so it sounds very reasonable to understand that they prohibited doctors to prescribe any treatment during during visit to ER, so they could be further hospitalized. It, there's the the famous line in America from CDC. This was uh, from March 2020. We need 15 days of a shutdown to flatten the curve, meaning the curve of hospitalizations. And then we came full circle and we banned all outpatient treatment to ensure that everyone who has a problem with this will wind up in the hospital. And I think it lends credence to what you're saying, that it's unfortunately all about profits. The only other thing that they really have on the NIH website for treatment here, and I can't pronounce the generic but the, uh, the brand name is Olumiant, produced by Eli Lilly, and it has an FDA black box warning that it could cause blood clots. I, I, I don't understand how anyone can make something like that up, how the one thing you'll use in an ICU when you're most concerned about blood clotting <laughs> and a pulmonary embolism is, is, is something that's an FDA black box warning. And so the FDA has warnings for everything, even if it doesn't really cause that, but you have to say nausea, uh, vomiting, whatever. But this is a black box warning, which is very rare, and they approve that, but then something that people don't even know they're taking it, even if you think it doesn't work, it certainly doesn't cause problems, safest drugs. Um, last word, uh, and, and we can go on forever, but we got to wrap it up here. What, what do you advise um, both the doctors in this audience and um, layman potential patients of some of the best things they could do proactively to have a better outcome from this virus? Okay, so the first first point is to be uh, prophylactically, if you, in case you do not have ivermectin, uh, stay up with the vitamin D. We know we rarely see patients with high with good levels of vitamin D. Even in my study, observational study, it was rare to find patients with vitamin D above 40 that went worse. Okay, so even those untreated ones that had vitamin D above 40, they went well in the untreated group of the observational study. But I think that the, the fastest, the faster, the better. And in case of absence of any of these drugs, I think they should use high dose of those natural anti-inflammatory agents like curcumin or even other ones that use- Black seed as, oil. Exactly, DHA, uh, alpha lipoic acid. All of these could work. I mean. Maybe peripherically, it's, and these are just hypotheses. Well, they are. High dose vitamin C uh, could work as well. And uh, uh, us, for example, arginine, arginine, because arginine is a vaso, uh, it, it, uh, it causes a vasodilatation of the vessels. So it could work theoretically against our scalp too. So we need to, to have these natural options that you could buy over the counter. But otherwise, you could only, uh, there would be a, uh, in case you don't have access, but once you're diagnosed with COVID, the faster, the better, and combinations work synergistically, as you said, one plus one is not two in this scenario, it's three or four or five. And, there, and you could combine natural like vitamin C, D, and with these drugs uh, work the better, the more, the better. Even when you combine all these drugs and vitamins and, anti and natural anti-inflammatory agents, the likelihood of having any damage caused by the combination is very, very low. Whereas the likelihood of being benefited from these is huge. So it's almost 
from an ethical perspective, I consider sort of a negligence just to tell the patient to sit and wait. Yes. Okay. Even without, even for those that consider there's there's not an option with one A level of evidence, you should, must work yeah. with the existing evidence. And, and they even, can no longer say that the option is um, the vaccine because what we're experiencing through this audience and we have it all the time, people had the vaccine and they get the virus and they still get very sick from it. And we could talk about 40% effective, 50%, whatever it is, and it wanes over time. But the point is that you don't know if you're one of those people. It's not 50% amelioration of symptoms for 100% of people. You don't know if you're one of those people. And we're seeing a lot of people, especially if they're vaccinated, oh, I was told I can't get critically ill from it. And then they wait until the pulmonary phase and they don't treat it at the viral phase when it's just some fever and whatever. So you're saying try to get prophylactics, definitely get your DNC levels up um, and, and, and use some of the uh, natural anti-inflammatories on the FLCC's uh, protocol, uh, which you're certainly you've been a big a part part of that. Um, this is this has been very engaging. I really hope you come back again. We wish you luck with your you know legal issues that uh, so many of the doctors here could commiserate with what you're going through because uh, it's, it seems like it's a global problem. We're we're all in this together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It seems all that we are all together in these and the story is global. Profits are global. Uh, the plan is global. Sorry to say that, but I think there is nothing. It's not I, I, I'm completely against compliance theories, but everything is matching so much that it's becoming harder not to believe that there is something behind. Sorry. Absolutely. And I think we all see this. Well, thanks so much for your time. And we really look forward to having you back again and your, your advice. I could tell you your advice just so you know, has, you know, with the with the updating the protocols, I know a lot of that has come from you in particular. I cannot tell you how many people have, have emailed in and said, we've used the FLCC's protocol. I started early and, you know, I'm, I'm better for it. So you're making a difference globally, not just in Brazil. Just know that. Thank you so much for hearing that. That's That gives me uh, such comfort to, and, and strength to keep, on because sometimes we just feel like giving up. Okay, the world is not wanting well, us. Because never give up. We're relying on your data, and thanks so much for everything. We're praying for you. We'll speak to you later. Take care. Yeah, take care. Bye. Well, folks, again, that was Dr. Flavio Cartagiani. Um, I don't know what to say. I, I, was, I asked him for a half an hour. He gave me the full hour. Um, he is under a lot of duress. You know, he almost got emotional there at the end. He is getting crushed. Um, you know, obviously, he does have an accent, so, you know, you might want to listen to it on a slower uh, rate. Um, I always marvel at people that can not only talk and think in another language, but do so with technical medical terms. It's it's amazing, but still, obviously, just over audio and everything, it's, it's harder to understand. But he, I, I'm not exaggerating, Dr. Corey considers him the top COVID doctor in the world. And I think you could see that he's done the most clinical research. The and, and you could tell how thorough it was because, like, when he would study ivermectin or nitazoxin, he also saw their D levels. He saw many other factors. Boom, 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 boom. I mean, this guy should be invited to around the world to do everything. 
Um, he is a big driving force now behind the FLCC, helping out Americans. If you are a clinician, if you're a layman, you have questions, let me know. We are going to try to find, streamline a way to get you the two drugs that you can't get primarily. I mean, there's a few more. The primary ones that you can't get over the counter, um, ivermectin and nitazoxanide, um, because we're concerned that the more they vaccinate, the more it will make this resilient. It's interesting. He said the cosmo, convalescent plasma, he said, makes more variants. Very interesting to the thesis we've been pointing out that half-baked antibodies or vaccines or kind of antivirals that don't work, they actually make it worse. Very interesting. There is so much to digest in that interview. Um, my brain is spinning. I have some notes here. Uh, there is a lot to digest there. But again, this is a global problem. This is a global satanic problem where nobody is allowed to treat. He is being, it's a crime against humanity to not treat people. And he's being accused of a crime against humanity for treating 2,400 people with zero deaths. And 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 I would say by extension, really uh, thousands upon thousands of people that he has saved because um, he didn't just treat them. He also put out uh, data that has helped the world. He is the man behind so much of the research on nitazoxanide, a good portion of it on ivermectin, and really all of it on the androgen blockers. Um, Dutasteride is, is something that a lot of doctors here have said seems to be responding well to. Again, it would be nice to have one pill that would take care of it for everyone. And there are stories. I, I, hear, I still hear plenty of cases where a guy even took the horse paste and last-ditch effort, uh, Steve Dace's friend for whom we have the lawsuit uh, against Walmart, you know, and eight hours later, he's better. But again, you know, we want to make sure we give you the surest thing. The best thing is the earliest possible, the most things you can do, and and perhaps even prophylactically. The problem is, for a whole family, how do you get a hold of enough of it? We're going to try to get a solution for you. I'm going to tell you, you know, it's a crime. It should be dirt cheap. Government should have made it free, basically. You know, it should have been free. Um, it's going to cost. It's going to cost... But it, for most people, it will at least be affordable if you're worried about your life, if you don't, if you didn't get the virus yet, who knows how bad this is going to get. Um, we're going to keep on this in the coming days. We're way over time, but I think you could forgive me. I think this was a, a terrific treat. What a terrific human being, Dr. Flavio Cadigiani. Uh, thank you, Dr. Corey, for hooking me up with him. Um, man, what a human being. What a human being that is. Um, you know, we truly are in this together diversity, global, you know, we're the ones working together, regardless of your background, whoever you are, just trying to treat people, regardless of your politics. It was funny, like yesterday, Pierre, Corey, and I were talking about, and somehow it came up, you know, he he looks favorably upon BLM. You know, he's a big liberal, and this has brought us all together. We are the ones in this together. We're going to get out of this together, God willing. Till tomorrow, God bless y'all, and thank you for listening.